0: Tell me if you remember. Me if remember. No telling if you remember. Yeah. I'll never forget.
1: I'll never forget. Yeah. Welcome to the hashtag Haldasin Podcast. The show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the day's episode of the Hashtag Cause a Scene podcast. My guest today is Ayani Good, and I brought her on. Um, as you guys know, I'm a, I'm a historian and a researcher, and I want to give some background context to a lot of, you know what, I'm not going to say anything else. Ayani, introduce yourself to the audience. <laughs> Hello,
0: I'm Ayani Good, and um happy to be invited to uh, Kim's podcast and ready to get started whenever she's ready to get started.
1: All right. So I'd like to ask you two things, two questions that I always ask everyone. And it is, why is it important to cause a scene? And how are you causing a scene? Okay. um, First of all,
0: what um, I consider cause a scene to be has had a negative connotation in the past, you know, Kids acting out in the grocery store, they're causing a scene. Two drunks arguing outside the bar, they're causing a scene. But what I like to do is shift the paradigm and say, you cause a scene to bring attention to items, practices, people that need to be addressed or corrected, and or corrected. So I don't see cause a scene as the negative definition that it actually has, which is to draw bad attention to something. So right off the bat, I don't see it as a negative. I see it as you bring attention to something that needs to have attention brought to it. Uh, The second question. (laughs) Wow. Um, As you may or may not know, my sister uh, was on the staff of Dr. Martin Luther King at uh, Southern Christian Leadership Council. And I used to hang with her and with the staff members. When I was in school, I'd go down to the office. Uh, On Auburn Avenue in Atlanta and do my homework and stuff. So things were happening around me that I didn't really give significance to. That was her job, you know, interesting people going in and out. I didn't pay much attention to it. But what I did get from her is my sense of social justice, my sense of uh, advocating for those who cannot advocate for themselves, as well as advocating for myself, uh, which is harder to do. So I've grown up in. I had by having a sense of, well, for my teenage years, I've grown up from having a sense of if I see something wrong, I'm going to speak to it. I'm going to act on it. uh, Let the chips fall where they may, where where they may. And that's what. um, So causing a scene, I'll just give you two very recent examples of uh, what would be considered (laughs) my causing a scene. The first one occurred uh, back in the spring. I'm in Macon, Georgia, and back in the spring, they were having expos for seniors where you go and you you have talks about, you know, identity theft and just things that are pertinent to seniors. Um, I'm 71, so I'm in that category. And um, there was one gentleman there, an Asian gentleman representing an organization that I don't remember the name of, but he had these little fans. They were these little, they looked like little Frisbees, but they were fans, and the unique part about it is you could ball them up and you could put them in a little container that was about the size of, of the old-fashioned change purse. So it was a very popular item. Everybody wanted one of those. Someone was coming. Um, I went up and got one, and um, some people came behind me, and he said, well, I don't have any more of the pouches for them to go into, so you can get the fan. Well, the novelty of the fan was having a little pouch, so people went and sat back down. As I was taking a break, they gave us a couple of breaks, and as I was taking a break, I happened to meander over to his table, and he had more of the fans plus the containers out on the table. He was passing them out, so I didn't think much about it. Fast forward to October, we had another senior expo in Warner Robins, and this same organization was there, and this same man was there representing. This time, the, the novelty item was a, sort of a back massager, a little plastic back massager. And, you know, people were getting excited about it. I went up and got one, sent the people at my table to get one. And when they got up there, my table was about 20 feet from his his exhibit booth. So I had a pretty clear, direct line of sight to what he was doing. So people from my table went up to get um, the back scratcher, and he told them he didn't have any more. So, okay, well, you don't have any more, you don't have, have any more. So they went and wandered around the other exhibits and picking up giveaways. And I'm sitting there because I had everything I wanted. And this same gentleman comes from behind his booth, comes up to the table near the table where I'm sitting, grabs this old white man by the arm says, I can give you uh, everything that I have. Walked him over to his table, went up under the table into a box and gave the man one of everything that everybody else had gotten, plus the back scratcher that he said he had run out of. So I'm ticked off by this time. I'm like, mm, okay. So I sent my table mates up there. And said, he got some more. He again told them he didn't have any more. So I'm sitting at the table, I'm fuming. And I'm like, you know, I got to address this. My table mates were saying, no, let it go. It's not important. I'm like, it is important. I said, because this is the second time I've witnessed this same man doing the same kind of stuff. So they pretty much convinced me, you know, not to go up and confront him, which was my plan. I couldn't wait till I got home. I had already pulled up the organization on Facebook. I couldn't wait till I got home. I sent them a message. I explained the situation. And I told them, you're an organization that is supposed to be uh, in the business of caring for senior citizens and people who are disabled. And this is what I witnessed at, you know, at your exhibit booth. I got an immediate response back, oh, we're so sorry, but you know, we only bring a certain amount of things to the exhibits. And, you know, when you run out, you know, we run out and, you know, let me know which things that were and we can mail you some. And I immediately said, thank you for your response, but that's not the point. The point is this gentleman was telling people of color that they did not he didn't have any more of the items. He blatantly lied because I saw him go up under the table and give this white man one of everything that he said he was out of. And uh, you know, that's not fair. I said, We're we're seniors, but we're not stupid. We're not children. If you run out of stuff, you run out of stuff. It is what it is. But he lied. And I don't want you to send me anything. I'm here to advocate for those who were pissed off and were complaining about it and were asking me not to say anything, but I can't, I can't not say anything. So their response was that they were going to look at their promotional practices and, you know, um, if I saw them again at another exhibit and, you know, bring it to their attention. So that's just one of the things that I did. Minor, little plastic thing, probably could have got it at uh, Oriental Trading or the dollar store or whatever. But the point of the matter was he blatantly lied and he blatantly disrespected a group of people who were there you know, for services.
1: We'll get into your second story. What I want to talk to you about this, this idea of the, of black families um, being quote unquote, broken up or absentee black father is because of blackness itself. It's because there's a lack in our maybe DNA in our commitment to relationships All these things. um, But it's always pointed at black folks that our families are, quote unquote, broken, that our communities are, quote unquote, shit. Um, And I wanted to talk you to talk about because I did I did a, a long thread on Twitter about some of the facts, some of the things that I've heard when I worked. So I worked in Cabrini Green Projects in Chicago. And anybody knows, they're not there anymore, but it was one of the most, most notorious project um, in projects in the United States. And I, when I got the job, I was a youth worker. I was terrified of going into that community because of everything I'd seen on the media, everything I heard. Um, about that community. But once I got in that community, what I realized, it was just Black folks living their lives, their families, they're um, um, trying to survive, um, being re- trying to be resilient in, in a situation, in, a, in an environment that um, the most people could not survive in. So I was having conversations that got to know me, that got to trust me. And I was just starting to have conversations with some of the people there. And and they started telling me some things that I was just like blew my mind. And I've had conversations with you about these same things. So can you walk us through how public housing in the United States was a catalyst in dismantling and destroying and harming the black family? Okay. And I can only speak to my
0: experience on that. Um, just a little background. I was born in Ohio. Um, Our family's status was pretty upper middle class. My dad worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, She was also an abused wife. And so we left Ohio and moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where where my maternal grandmother and her sisters were living. There was an immediate culture shock because here we are going from having basically everything we needed or wanted to coming south to having basically nothing. We were in poverty. We, did, My mom didn't have a job. Um, we were living from relative to relative that didn't really want us there. I mean, she had three children. So, you know, to open up your home that's already overcrowded to a woman with three children was, you know, pretty traumatic. Um, finally, through my grandmother's uh, connections or whatever, we were approved to live in housing projects. So we got assigned to these projects called Herndon Homes. Uh, which of course, all the projects in Atlanta have been torn down, so it no longer exists. So, we moved into Hernan Homes. Our apartment was up over the office, so we had a two bedroom. Uh, had an upstairs, downstairs. Uh, very, I mean, it was pretty okay when you've gone from you know sharing a bed with two of your siblings to having you know a bedroom where each of you had a bed was was really you know earth-shattering in those days. So my mom got a job through my grandmother working for white people as a maid. She was making $7 a day. Our rent was $45 a month, which at times we couldn't even make that. We had to borrow to make that. But life in the projects was almost like, when I look back on it, was almost like life in a prison. Although we did have outdoor spaces, we could roam freely throughout throughout the projects, but basically we were cut off from residential areas where they would have like single family housing by two major highways. So we were enclosed within those two main streets. Um, rules and regulations were many and swift, uh, retaliation would happen if you broke those rules. One of them was, um, Kids couldn't play on the grass. Well, you got a lot of families with a lot of children. Where are they going to play? There were a couple of playgrounds. They weren't very convenient to where we lived. Um, so children had to go there. Uh, employment. Mothers that were in the projects could work. Any fathers that were there were either disabled or unemployed or under, were underemployed. And uh, they were allowed to remain with their families. And I say allowed to because if you were single, you were not permitted to have a boyfriend or a husband. Um, They would have not—I didn't witness it, but I was told that there would be midnight raids so that they would come. Somebody in the projects would say— Oh, Miss So and So really isn't single. She has a husband, or she has a boyfriend, and he comes over and he spends the weekends. So Friday night around midnight, when Mister Jones would come to visit his family, the um, management would stage a inspection, and they had keys, so they just come in and they would see if Mister Jones was indeed in the house.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, I'm gonna stop you right there. So what you just hit me with something? So. And okay, I, I want you to listen to this, people. I really want you to listen to this, because as, as we unpack a system of white supremacy and, and, and racism in the United States, what Ayani is saying is to families who had nowhere to go were given what they thought was a lifeline a place a pl- clean place to go because that back in the day they were nice spaces from what right. i heard they were well kept right. they were they were nice places and i'm going to tease out some things so first of all cuz I, I know this from Cabrini How they did this was they put everything you needed right there. So the school was right there. Your grocery store was right there. Your church was right there. And the fact that you're telling me that there were highways that basically segregated you from the rest of the community is the same thing that we saw, I saw in projects in Chicago. Um, I had students, or they weren't students, uh, an after-school program or whatever. They were, so Cabrini-Green, unlike a lot of the projects in Atlanta, I mean in Chicago, was Very close to million dollar, multi million dollar real estate. This is right across the street. Yes, from multi million dollar real estate, and so. But these kids never went there. They never. I when I was working with these young kids, these young people, I I would weekly we would go to the movie theater that was five blocks away, that was on the one of the most expensive streets in the United States, and these kids never went there. So it's like this. So. I'm, I'm so I'm teasing this out so you're 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 confined by boundaries and mm-hmm. mental barriers not to even go out of this space and now and then you're saying that these these people had they had fucking keys that could go in your place anytime they wanted. it yes ma'am without and we notice and we
0: didn't have grocery stores we had little mom and pop Stores, we might, I remember one fast food place, maybe on each side of the perimeter of the projects, but we had to go outside or downtown because we were in walking distance of downtown Atlanta. It was a world of difference. We had to go down there to what was called the municipal market, which is like a farmer's market. So we didn't have grocery stores. We had to go out of the area to get to a grocery store.
1: So again now cuz we talk about and I'm bringing this up cuz we talk about this a lot now in in 2018 food um what they call them food deserts food deserts yes so um but I'm still get, so okay cuz this and I'm I'm bringing this home because so many as a black person I didn't know this until I asked questions and so many white people or I'm not even going to say white people because everybody in the United States immigrant um Whatever everybody comes to the United States with an idea of not being—I—I I, I am anything but black. Everybody can want, is thriving to be anything but black, and the anti-blackness um, doc- indoctrination is so deep that y- that there is this belief. This ing- I mean, there, no one questions the inadequacies or the ineptitude of blackness. Yet there are there were governmental. Policies and procedures in place that violated the humanity of people. Absolutely. And I'm I'm, I'm hitting on this, guy so you get so you can understand what I'm saying because I'm actually getting pretty touched about this. Because wh- how would you feel in your home had someone just walked in with a key at midnight? It doesn't even matter to me what time because it it speaks to again how black people have been just disregarded and, and, and treated as animals, as property, as, 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 um, not valuable until we are valuable until you can make money off us. So these, so these, so I was listening to a video and this woman was, and I'm going to share this with, in the show notes, she was saying how it was, she was a family of 12. She was a, 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 a um, She was a a child of a family of 12 and the public housing people came to her mother and father and said, we will let you into this public housing thing as long as your husband leaves the state. Then her parents had to sit back and have a conversation about that and they decided to go into the public housing projects. So I want to back that up again because then you're thinking, because I know somebody's out there thinking, well, why did they have 12 kids? Blah, 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 if they were too poor. These, I need you to see that these systems have been put into place that black males were underemployed, unemployed, they could not provide. And who are you, particularly in this day and age, when everybody's trying to think, thinking about Roe versus Wade. I mean, yeah, Roe versus Wade, that black people can't have the families that they wanna have. We have TV shows of people with 19 kids. And so I'm hoping I'm drawing these parallels to you so you can start challenging the narratives you have internalized, either intentionally or not, about blackness in the United States. And globally, because anywhere there was colonization, anywhere there, was, there were Christian missionaries, this, this same rhetoric, this same understanding has been carried around the world. So uh, you can go back to your story, but it just hit me, the fact that you, are, that you were discouraged. Oh my God, now this has just hit me. You were discouraged. Black people were discouraged from having families when all whiteness was encouraged to have families. To have a family bond. Think about that. Think about the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not the position, but I guess that could be of black families being told, we'll give you this. If you're male, if you're, if the man of the house, the, the that person who could, if he had the opportunity to be fully employed, can benefit the family. No, he has to leave. But on the other hand, we're telling white people to go to the suburbs, have this. Uh, your family is most important. I need you to think about that. I need, need you to visualize that. Because this is the history that the United States is built on.
0: Um, there were families that had a large amount of children. There were only three of us. So there were families that, you know, didn't have a large amount of children. The are uh, people next door to us were elderly couple who had adopted a little boy who was disabled so they were able to get in um, just some of the other rules about employment. Now, my mom worked as a maid so it was okay cuz she had to pay the $45 a month rent. But some of the things that came along with it was my mom has always been very well dressed. When we were in Ohio, she worked at a dress shop. So she she had style. Um The people that she worked for would give her very nice, expensive clothes. Her maid uniforms, when she walked up to the bus stop every morning, her uniform was starched and ironed and, you know, she looked good. She would go out in the evening when she came home. She was a member of the Elks Club. She would go out on Thursday. That was when they had their lodge meeting and she'd have on something nice. You best believe on Friday morning, somebody had contacted the office. Why is she wearing such expensive clothes? She doesn't need to be here. She's got money. And so they would bring in, um, they would bring my mother in and have her go through her um, income with them and make sure that her income is what it's supposed to be. You know, $7 a day and a hell of a lot, but they wanted to make sure that she was still making that $7 a day. And the thing that got to me was that The other people who were just as stressed and just as uh, marginalized as we were were telling we had people who would go to the office and tell on people. So-and-so had a man there the other night. So-and-so's daughter is pregnant. Well, if your daughter got pregnant, either the daughter had to move out and get her own apartment, or you had to move with your daughter, or your rent went up to market rate. Well, if it's going up to market rate, why live in the projects? So those were some of the other kinds of rules that we had to deal with. You know, don't dress nicely because they'll think you got money coming in from somewhere that you're not reporting.
1: And that reminds um, me of another story about the phone, how back in the, you know, back in the day, the phone was actually connected to the wall. You couldn't de- detach it. So any, any level of normalcy, they would have to hide the phone when these individuals came into the house.
0: Well, we were allowed to have a phone by the end. That was in the 50s, so they had moved on. So we could have a phone, we could have appliances. We could have a but We had uh, outside lines, so you didn't need a dryer. You take your clothes outside, no matter how far you had to walk, and hang them on the line. Uh, we could have television.
1: But this is uh, but the fact, I'm honest, I just to. Just, I know, we I could to, have. Exactly. The fact yeah. that there's a list of things that you could that uh, somebody's telling you as, 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 that you can have again, white people, I need you to hear this. The federal government, because these are federal government, this is federal government housing, were telling families what they could and could not have.
0: Yep. And there was a yearly inspection that they would tell you about, you know, this is when your inspection is gonna be. Uh, so they would come in and they would check to see what you had. They would check to see how clean up the, the property was, you know, did you keep your apartment clean? Um, they would go through my mother's drawers, uh, dresser drawers to make sure there were no male clothing items in there because that would mean that she had somebody over there that, that you know, spent the night or something. So these were things that we were used to. We get the letter, your inspection is dotted, out of date. Mom said, make sure, you know, we clean out the cabinet. I mean, we do all kinds of things. We didn't have a whole lot, but, you know, that, that apartment would be sparkling anyway because that was the kind of person my mother was but it would be super sparkling because we knew they were coming in to inspect. And inspect, they did. They came in with their little clipboards and their little notes and their little notes from the last inspection to make sure nothing had changed. And we went through this every year. If you found were found to not be following the rules, you got evicted. They didn't care where you went.
1: To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. You got
0: They didn't care where you went. There wasn't such... I don't remember them giving any notices. It was just, you know, you got 10 days to get out. Your daughter is pregnant. Where is she going to live when she had a baby? She can't live with you because you're only approved for such and such amount of people in your apartment. So the, with that that's the stereo of the welfare queen with the women having babies so they can get an apartment, that was based on some kind of truth because when a teenage daughter got pregnant, she had to get her own apartment. And so a lot of them got their own apartments. And so you have young women, teenagers, with their own apartments because they couldn't stay with their families.
1: And the family who was available to take care of them, to help them take care of the baby, all of mm-hmm. this stuff. So I, I'm, and I'm, 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 and I thank you for coming on and for being so candid because I'm going to hit this home again and again because I'm so sick of the the lazy Black narrative. I'm so sick of the level of anti-Blackness that permeates our culture. It is, oh, it's okay to do Blackface. It is, um, they must have, oh, they got shot. They must have done something wrong. Why why are they running from the cops? Um why this why that why? and it's in and it's a reason why i I'm no longer in school because I. it's no matter, black women are the most educated and degreed people in the United States and yet we still aren't making what the average white woman is making without a degree or are definitely the white man. And I'm just tired of the levels of anti-blackness in other people of color amongst ourselves. There's so much internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness among black people. We just really need to talk about this because we did not create this. And so what this system does Is It points a finger at us as the marginalized, as the victims, as in any other You point the finger at trans individuals. You point the finger at the LGBTQ community. You point the finger at people with disabilities and say they are the the reason um, that they're in these situations. And, And it's not. There has been a systematic tearing down of blackness that is baked into our federal policies our state policies, our local policy. We see it in Georgia with the recent election. Mm-hmm. If it were not for Stacey Abrams and the, the work she did before running for governor of, uh, about voter suppression, we would never hear about this because it's been going on for so long. And it's
0: the same thing that when my sister was with Dr. King, that's the same thing that they worked to dismantle and it's still happening. And that was back in the 60s.
1: And this is the thing like, and so I tell people, I'm very happy that Trump's president. You can get mad at me all you want to, but what it's done for the first time is make white people very uncomfortable. For the first time you're having to face what everybody else has been living with, because if it wasn't so bad for you, you wouldn't care. And I'm just gonna be, you would not care because if you had care, you would have done something before this. But you were comfortable living in your bubble. You never challenged anything. You never evaluated anything. You never evaluate your whiteness. And and again, I'm going to say, because it may be coming off that I hate white people. I do not hate white people. I do not. But I'm tired of you pointing the fingers at marginalized groups and saying it's our fault that we're in the the situations that we're in when there have been generations of centuries of bullshit piled upon us. And you've benefited from it.
0: I wanted to touch on two things. Um, The law enforcement aspect of living in the projects. And also, what is now our current food stamp program, please do uh, law enforcement, of course, in Atlanta, you only had you had a few uh, African Americans who had were allowed to join the police force, but they were only allowed to patrol in black areas. So in the projects, we had black police officers, and they were they were members of the community. people knew them. I mean, the relationships were very cordial. i my nickname growing up was Shakespeare because I was always reading and I would sit on my front porch and read comic books. And we had this one police officer who patrolled, who would come by, sit on the porch with me and read with me. He was a role model for the kids in the projects. We knew that if nobody else had our back, that he would get some help to us if we needed. The other part of that was what later became a, a burgeoning gang scene. We had quote-unquote, thugs in the projects. Let me tell you how that worked. I would go to the corner store, which was about three blocks away, at 11 o'clock at night to get a deal pickle. I would pass by groups of guys hanging on the corner. Doo-wop, that's where a lot of the doo-wop singers came in, the rhythm and blues age. Um, here comes Shakespeare. Where you going, Shakespeare? Going to the stuff. They holler up the street. Y'all make sure Shakespeare get get... What she need and get back home safely. They would watch me all the way till I got back home. Gone in house now. Shakespeare. These were the were the gang. The precursors to the gang members. It was a community because we had to have each other to survive. So the second part
1: is the food. <laughs> What's now the food okay? I want to I want to hold off on the food stamp because I want to speak to that too because even in Cabrini and that was in. 2000, when I was there, it was the same thing. Now, the gangs were much more violent by that point. But if there was something that was about to happen, at that, they would, I worked at an um, after-school program. They would come by and say, hey, this is about to happen at, at 6 o'clock. You need to get these kids out of here now. So that community is, was still there. We was they were still taking care of us, even when I was teaching um, at a high school, and we were out on um, the school was overcrowded, and we were out in the trailers. And um, when there was, and this was in the in the suburb, suburb, excuse me, suburb suburb of Atlanta, when there there was a year that they that's when they were displacing all these um, tearing down these um, projects, and so you had all these various gang members now instead of in their their areas coming against each other or being having to live in the same space with each other, they would actually, they knew that, and, and I was certified special needs teacher. So they knew that my students were, um, were special needs. So they, they, I had a relationship with them. If something's going down before it goes down, make sure you come tell Ms. Creighton so we can get out of here. That is what our community has always been. So I just wanted to put that out there. And I was
0: assistant principal of an alternative high school in Chicago and we had about seven gangs represented in that school. We never had a gang incident. As Kim was saying, they would come, miss Good, they're getting ready. Something's going to kick off after school. You might want to get the kids out early. We would call the police. They would sit out front so the kids could get have safe passage because our kids came from all over the city. They weren't just neighborhood kids. And those kids would get home safely. All the staff would get home safely. Whatever popped off, popped off. But they kept us safe. I remember going, uh, I was going somewhere one Sunday, and I was on the main street where the gangs hang out. And I saw these this group of kids piling into this car About seven or eight. So I knew they were up to no good. About seven or eight of them piling up into this car. They were all hyped up. I walked past. They rolled the window down. Hey, Miss Good, how you doing? And I'm like, okay. So they knew who I was. They respected wh- who I was. I don't know what they got. Because I told them to stay out of trouble, which was probably, you know, not heated at the time. But, at the, but they had that, re- that respect for people who were trying to do well. The same in the projects. If they knew that you were going to school, which I was in school, if they knew you were trying to do something, they made sure that nothing happened to you. Nothing happened to you. I could be out all times of the night by myself. Nothing ever happened to me. Because they were there. I knew they were out there. Yeah,
1: exactly. They were watching me. <laughs> they were watching me. Um, but go ahead and so, tell your second story.
0: Okay, so back in the day, we had this thing called government commodities. And you'll hear people wax nostalgic about the government cheese, which I hate But they, they claim it makes the best macaroni cheese in the world. So you would get your notice to go down to wherever it was, the office, uh, sort of like DCFS, and go get your commodities for the month. So you got cheese, big those big blocks of cheese. You got canned chicken. You got all sorts of things, which I guess why I'm such a finicky eater now, because I don't eat half of the stuff that they were giving us. But that's what people survived on because we didn't have grocery stores in the area. We had fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. Get out of here. Uh, if it wasn't in a can, we didn't have it unless we had to go outside the neighborhood. So now when I hear people talking about food stamp and then they went to the the paper food stamps where you know you had they were like they were different colors the dollar domination were, denominations was were so you went from that and yeah people sold them people sold them so they could get stuff that food stamps wouldn't allow them to buy so now you have the card you have the ebt uh card and i get so tired of people saying well I was in line in the grocery store and XYZ had a basket full of stuff and steak and lobster and was paying with a food stamp. As many people, and I have known hundreds, who have been on food stamps, I have never once been in the grocery store behind one of them that was buying steak and lobster. And if they were buying steak and lobster, why can't they buy steak and lobster? Why can't they buy chips for their kids? You know, they buy stuff, fast food items. Because they can't afford the fresh items. They can't afford the fresh vegetables and the fresh fruit. But I get so tired of people, you know, dumping on people who are food stamp recipients because they don't buy the right kind
1: of food. That they, if you're poor, you should only eat certain kind of food. But that right there is privilege and elitist in itself, mm-hmm. it's the right kind of food. Right. That- um, and particularly when we live in a society where ma- you can feed a, a, a family at McDonald's much cheaper than you can feed a family at a sit-down at um than at a grocery store. Right. Especially if you... Now, now I'm not talking about just getting the groceries. You got to get to the grocery store. You got to get home to the grocery store. You got to... All of these other things. Yep. That is so elitist and so privileged of people to say. And I get it. I used to think that. I I, I used to think... Like, why are they spending all this money? Because uh, again, high school teacher, these kids coming in drinking the first thing in the morning. They're drinking chips and juice, um, mm-hmm. some red, some red dyed, something or another. It has absolutely no nutrition, nu- nutritional value. Why are they doing that? Because it's cheaper to have to have that um, and buy that in bulk than it is to buy what you might call "quote unquote" real food. Right. It is about at some point in some people's lives, it's about just putting food in their child's or their mouths in their stomachs.
0: And then why do why do some people sell? they sell their food stamps? Because, number one, if you're a female, you cannot buy feminine hygiene products on food stamps. You can't buy toilet paper with food stamps. So if you if the only thing you have coming in is food stamps, how are you going to get those necessities?
1: Oh that's you, a very good point. That is a very can, good point.
0: Again there's a whole list of things that you can buy. You can buy cold sandwiches from Kroger or whatever, but you can't buy hot food. You have to buy you can't buy anything hot. It's just it seems so arbitrary,
1: but I but, it, but it is it's it's a going back again to treating people like they're right. their property, like they're
0: inhumane children. Yeah. You know, they don't have a they they can't make decisions for themselves on what their kids should eat.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so instead a, of a lot Okay, of and, and then it goes back to just like you just say, "Oh my god, you just hit it for me." Because it goes back to blaming the victim instead of fixing understanding that this is a system problem. This is not about this is um, yeah, oh my god, this is so about it's so and, and this is what gets me when people want to talk about racism. They love the definition of racism that's in the, in this in the in the um, Webster's dictionary, which is about a person a person doing something intentionally to discriminate. When we talk about racism systemic. today, it's a systemic. It's the person is just the cause of the effect. I mean, yeah, the cause. We don't the new the new definition of racism talks about the effect on people's lives, the effect of, of racism on, on groups of people. This is where when I talk about marginalization. It's not people. Oh, you know. It's not about marginaliz- marginalizing. Marginalization is not about one person. It's not about the individual. It's about how these systems oppress and impact groups, communities of individuals.
0: I can't buy diapers on food stamps. I can't get toilet paper. I can't get sanitary napkins or tampons. Uh, there's and the WIC program started because they wanted. It's women, infants, and children because they wanted babies to have healthy food. So there are certain products that are like fresh foods and stuff like that, that if you're a mother on WIC, you can get those kinds of things because they know that those are necessary. But if you're just a normal food stamp recipient, you know, those things weren't, I, they weren't earmarked for you. You get what you get.
1: And then it speaks to um, so this episode is coming after virginia Eubanks' episode when she saw um, her book um, Automating Inequality, and we talked about welfare and I really want to have this conversation right after hers because she talks about there was a um she was in welfare um social justice, and she talks about um, they were they were talking about the technical stuff and and, and th- these women in this community weren't using they had you know the 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 computer lab set up and these women weren't using it so there's an assumption that oh that they're just afraid of technology they're not impacted by technology and this one individual said no our lives are consumed with technology it's being used against us so we want to talk about that EBT card so now mm-hmm. the person who is your social worker or caseworker can now see evaluate everything you've purchased. No one should have that damn much surveillance over you. Where where is the um, ACL, whatever, what is it? ACLU. Yeah. Where are they with this stuff? Where they have been, we have been surveilling the poor. And this is white poor, black poor, uh, Latinx poor, Asian poor, all of them. We have been surveilling the poor for so long. And so when um, Virginia said she was doing the research, she thought it started back when, you know, the 90s. And she's like, no, it went farther back. She's like, okay, it had to start in the 80s. She's like, no, oh my God, it started. And and so it was like, we've been surveilling the poor, using their data against them as weapons against them for from when these, these programs started. And now it's so much easier because now it's a part of the computer system.
0: Right. And if you apply for food stamps, Medicaid office automatically gets your information, IRS automatically gets your information. Uh, if you get any income, you know, that has to be reported to IRS, that information immediately goes back to, you know, the food stamp office. And so, you know, everybody knows what everybody has. And we were on welfare when we were living in the projects and my mom would have to go and visit, you know, the welfare office and bring them up to date on what she was doing. And of course, she always got comments because she was very nicely dressed, um, when, she, when we finally moved out of the projects um, and moved into a regular apartment, and eventually, my mother only had a ninth grade education, but somehow or another, this same sister who worked with Dr. King got her on as a data entry clerk with the state of Georgia. So she goes down to the welfare office. I have a job. I don't need. It took her forever for them to take her off the welfare road. They did not want to take her off. Why? I don't know if they had quotas or what, but it took her forever to say, "I don't need this anymore."
1: Because her being on it. the welfare rolls and having the income that can, negative could have neg- negatively impact, impacted her, right?
0: Right. She had to initiate, take me off. Well, we're gonna keep you on another thirty. Take me off. I mean, it was it was it. Was, we would make a joke about it. I'm like, wow. I didn't know you had to fight to get off welfare. I know you had to struggle to get on sometime, but I didn't realize you had to fight to get off it. But it took us some some months to be able to get off welfare. And she was so glad when she did.
1: Wow. I just I just think about because everybody wants to talk about, you know, how Russia and I, I'm, I'm not I, I, I'm not minimizing these situations. But, you know, how how the Soviet Union or um, capital um, communism, uh, you know, like North Korea, how they surveil China, um, how they surveil during um, during uh, World War Two with um, Germany and, and Italy. We're doing this in our country every single day to people and no Mm -hmm. one's raising arms about it. So when I, I just laugh when people talk about, Oh, we're now fascist. Do you not know what we've been, what, what you've, but again, let me stop. It's only been people of color, particularly black people who've had to deal with this. So no, I guess you don't care. or didn't know what was going on to families, um, for, for generations. And it did not. And, and now because you, you get to see it or now it's impacting you. It's, it's fascism. It's the, this is how black people have survived in the United States since slavery. <laughs> we've, 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 we've been given the shit in of the stick at every turn. And we, if the plan had been had, had worked out, I guess, how it should. We shouldn't, I mean, when I think about it, we shouldn't really exist right now. We have overcome so many barriers on the, on so many levels. So you're talking, so we're talking about welfare and public housing, which is on the federal level. We're talking about um, um, voter suppression that was Jim Crow and all of that on the state level. Then we're talking about just local stuff. Then we're talking about how, you, the family dynamics, we've had it coming and going for centuries. And let us not leave out the medical field.
0: Oh, my, yes, please. Yes. My, 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 my second cause of scene incident involved the medical field. So um, I go to a doctor and, you know, they want to, you know, I'm a senior citizen. So we're supposed to sit there and listen to the doctor and get prescribed our kind of medicine. Well, I haven't always been a senior citizen, and I'm very educated, and I'm very well-read, and I'm a researcher. So they wanted to give me—high cholesterol runs in our family. There is, there is a hereditary um, impact of high cholesterol in our family. So they wanted to give me these drugs, um, and they're called statins. They're different names, but statin, S-T-A-T-I-N, is on the end of it. Well, I went and researched and it said that, you know, there was some very bad side effects of statins. So I'm like, no, I'm not going to take these. So I go to the doctor Well, your cholesterol is high. Yeah, it always is. Uh, Your blood pressure is fine. Yeah, thank you. Um, So we're going to give you this, whatever, whatever statin. I'm like, no, you're not. Well, that's the best thing. That is the only thing that lowers cholesterol. Well, hey, mine won't get lower because you're not going to give it to me. So because I go to the clinic, They have a supervising physician. So he brings in the the, the resident, brings in the top guns. Oh, this is the best thing for cholesterol and it guards against strokes. I'm like, like, no, I'm not going to take them. So every time I go to the clinic, the first thing they talk about is the statins and the cholesterol. So the last time I went, I had done some research, you know, just just in case. Um, First thing out of my mouth was the statins. I said, uh, let me inform you of some recent research that says, that statins are contraindicated for persons of African-American ethnicity because they've never been tested on. Of course, everything, every medicine is tested on you know, other ethnic groups other than African-American. We don't have the same reactions to statins as white people, so as, you know, as for an example. And they're saying, do not prescribe these or be very careful in prescribing these statins. To African-Americans. So I tell him that, oh, well, anybody can do research. They can get on Google. I said, um, Johns Hopkins University, June 2018, put out this recent study. And I quoted him chapter and verse what the study said. And it was like, oh, so this is one of these elderly women that we can just say, oh, you need this. And you say, yes, a doctor. Genitive exactly.
1: And, and it happens because they underestimate us. See, this yeah. is why I stopped fucking going to school. I don't care how many damn degrees I have, how many initials I put on the back of my day. I'm always going to be questioned about my intellect, my ability, my all of that. It's always going to come into question. And we look, we're seeing it now. I've been having a conversation with a friend because we're seeing now that because only because they have platforms only because they have th- millions of fans that how black women have been dying or been adversely, um, or been harmed and given, just giving birth, giving birth. Giving birth. Yeah. So we're only hearing about this in 2018 because Beyonce and Serena and now, um, I can't think of her name. Um, um, another rapper, female, um, just had a trauma, and hurt pregnant, I mean, hurt delivery. Um, but think about all the generations of women who've died because none of these things have been tested on us. No, no one has res- researched the health of black people. And then I'm going to drop, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to drop this in the show notes that black, peop- that black women were actually experimented on. Yes. Because one, there's another issue. They, they, there's this, this fallacy that we don't feel pain or feel pain in the same levels as, as white people. So we're least likely to be given any um, any um, pain relief or be believed about pain.
0: I was going to say they don't even want to listen to you about pain. But and, I cause a scene every time I go to my doctor. We're good. I have, I have my research and I have my mouth. And good. You're not going to shut me down. And this is what you can say. I'm not gonna treat you, but that's that's fine too. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's this is what this whole cause of scene movement is about. It's about us. Not as long as I got a microphone and a, a Twitter account or whoever, and an internet connection, I have the same access to the world that traditionally has been I've been excluded from. Absolutely. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I know it's i know listeners it seems like we've been all over the place we could get, I could bring on a litany of people and talk about anti blackness because you really need to understand that uh that and, and break down um when you when you question, when you have these questions in your uh, mind, when you see something, and and, and all the, uh, we have all these videos of these black or these white women attacking black people and, 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 and people of color. This is in, th- this is why I say white people are racist by by definition. You don't have to like it. I don't give a shit. But what you do have to do, if this is important to you to change this system is you, I, at this point, you need to demonstrate to me, are you actively working to be anti-racist or are you on the spectrum of white supremacy? And you'll
0: have to have me come back, Kim, because I haven't even addressed the educational system and and, and
1: my career experiences.
0: All oh, right, so. so we well we we'll,
1: we'll definitely have to have a part two with the young and good. So, are there any last words that you have?
0: Just that um, people just need to stop being afraid of repercussions when they speak out. You got to get repercussions when you don't speak out. So I might as well, you know, like Dr. King. Well, you know, you you go and you get beat up, but you still make your point. I'm gonna make my point. I'd rather make my point and get beat up for it than, than sit back and let stuff happen to me or to other people who don't feel that they have a voice. As long as I can speak, I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak against injustice and I'm going to be for, you know, my community. It's just second nature to me to want to speak out against injustice. And I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep on, as the spiritual side, I'm going to keep on marching. I'm going to keep, keep on marching. I'm going to keep on preaching. I'm going to keep on doing everything I do until they lay, lay my
1: body in the cold ground. Mm. And that's just it. That's deep because I want to, with that, thank you for that. Because I want to say this is why white liberals are pain in my ass and why femin, white feminists are pain in my ass. You're not willing to give up your privilege so that we can all get there together. We don't get there together. We don't get there at all. Thank you so much, Ayanne Good, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Call the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Call the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCalltheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.